Welcome to the Go Lead Everything podcast. Do you aspire to become the best leader you can be? Then come along with me and GLE. Faith, love, integrity, courage. Four key values of great leaders all around the world. I'm Phil Swanson, and I'm on a mission to bring you leaders from all walks of life and arm you with the tools and mindset to lead effectively in whatever you are called to do. Are you ready? Because it's time to go lead everything. What is going on, everybody? This is the feature episode of GLE for this crazy year of 2020. This is an episode that I've been thinking about for a long time and I'm thrilled we could finally make it happen. My guest this week is a business coach, best-selling author, speaker, podcast host, serial entrepreneur, community creator, leader, fitness enthusiast, car fanatic. Basically, to sum it all up, he's 365 driven. And yes, that's 365 days a year, which includes weekends. Most people are working all week, looking forward to the weekend, and this guy is putting his foot on the gas, pedal to the floor, consistently advancing his goals and building and leading the 365 Driven Society, which is a tremendous group of exceptional, successful people who are looking to do the same. So privileged for the opportunity to chat today with my good friend and mentor, the side hustle millionaire himself, Tony Watley. Tony, welcome, my man. Hey, Philip, man, it's been good to know you for the last couple of years and see you evolve as well. And you know, I love that you talked about we're working on weekends because you and I are sitting here on a Saturday morning getting this thing done because we don't make any excuses, do we? No, sir. Definitely not. So, Tony, I've seen some of your videos, some of your posts lately. I think you may lift more weight now than I ever did as a college baseball player. And I was accused of being a football player trying to play baseball. So we're going to jump right in. I'm curious, what gave you that drive to build yourself into the healthiest version of yourself that you've ever been in your entire life at this point in your life? I think we had to go through a, a negative downturn. I think most people go through something that they realize. And for me, I was always an athlete. Like you, I played you know, high school football, ran track, did all these different things as a kid and lifted weights all through college. Most of my 20s, I was in shape. And then Around 30, I started to get a little complacent, but mostly because of excuses looking back. But for me, those excuses were very common to what most people talk about now. It was, hey, I'm working full time and I've got a kid and I'm starting a side business and doing all these things. And and it really just started to just take away from my priorities of health because I still felt like I was young and, you know, I was like 28 when I started my first company and thinking that uh, I'm not going to lose health because I've been in shape my whole life, you know, it's just, just going to stick around. And, and then around 35, I started to feel aches and pains, lower back pains, joint pains. And then I used to hang around with a bunch of people who also let themselves go and they would say things like, well, it must be getting older, you know, or, you know, we don't heal as fast as we used to. And, you know, they would just reinforce these negative beliefs about ourselves. And I just kind of bought into that. I said, well, I guess, yeah, I mean, I'm, getting close to 40 years old and I, and I kind of feeling these aches and pains, I guess I am getting older because I don't remember seeing anybody at that age level being physically fit when I was young. So I figured that's what you do. You kind of stay in shape until you hit 30 and you kind of just taper downhill and you go from there. And guys, that's a bunch of BS. It was just a big excuse because 
what happened is my wife, she's about eight years younger than me, and she always went to the gym, and she would always encourage me. She wouldn't shame me, but she would encourage me, hey, why don't you come with me? Why don't you come with me? And, and for years, probably four or five years, I was like, no, nah, I don't feel like it. And I really just truly didn't feel like it because I have aches and pains, and I, and I knew that I was starting to gain weight. And here's the thing that most people don't really understand is that a lot of the times you don't want to go to the gym because you realize that you're so far below zero, you're literally negative, right? You've let yourself go. You're not even average anymore. And you're looking at your gut and it's hanging over your belt line. And you don't even like to tuck your shirt in anymore because it's making your belly stick out like you're pregnant. And you start to feel like insecure and, and things like this, like a dude, especially if you know that you were an athlete when you're young, right? You're like, man, look at this body. Why do I let myself go? How do I have man boobs? What is this stuff? You know? And and so you've become that middle-aged man that you used to make fun of when you were 20 years old, right? And so you're realizing if I'm going to go step foot in the gym again, it's going to be a long road just to get to zero, just to get to average. It's going to take me months, maybe even years. So that's what keeps most people from going back. But what they need to realize is that your health is your most important thing that you need to be focused on. You may be focused on your career and building companies and doing all these different things, but your health Without your health, without the energy, none of that even matters because let's say you do find the fruits of your labor. Let's say you do build a successful company and you die. I mean, was it all worth it? No. So around 40, pivotal age for most people, I started looking at myself in the mirror and making real hard judgment on myself. And I said, you know, that, that person in the mirror is not who I am. I still felt like I was an athlete inside, right? It's how you define your, your belief systems and your, your identity. And I was looking at a mirror that was not an athlete. I said, well, so what is it going to take for me to get back to that? And all I did was start going back to the gym and it sucked. The first three, four months of trying to go back and feeling a little bit embarrassed, a little humiliated because you remember, oh, I used to work out and bench 225 on reps and you know, I was really strong. And, you, and mentally, you still think you're that same person. Right. And then you go, you go to the gym, and you're like, well, I'll do a warm up set and I'll put 135 on the bar. For the, for the people that don't work out, it's 45 plate on each side. And it looks impressive, right? And you go do it and you do like five reps and you're dying. You're like, <laughs> holy crap. Like, I'm not even, I'm 100 pounds below my old workout weight and I'm struggling. Yeah. And the mental thing that you go through when that happens, a lot of people will tap out and leave the gym and never come back again. But for me, I was, it was, I'm really wired weirdly. Like I like to challenge myself. So in a way I was kind of embarrassed, but also kind of excited about that because I knew that I had something I could build upon and I had something I actually could get into and improve and see actual measurable results over time. So that's what I've done. I'm, four, I'm about to be 48 in another couple of weeks. And yeah, I'm, I'm the physically the strongest I've ever been. Super cool, man. What's your favorite lift and what's, what's, your, uh, what's your current max in that? I think my favorite lift used to be bench pressed. And I think that's for most men because we, we can kind of shine at that. And I've always been strong at bench press and, and squats. And I think that I wasn't putting as much emphasis in leg day. Mm. So bench press just over 300 pounds now. And I started to focus more on the legs because I didn't want the chicken leg syndrome. You know, you see these dudes that are all swollen, jacked, walking around the gym, peacocking in front of the mirror, doing curls all day, building up their giant you know, boulder shoulders and their traps. And you look down and they've got little chicken legs with no calves and no <laughs> leg muscles and, and they skip leg day all the time. And, you know, I was like, I don't want to be like that. So I started really being more focused on legs about three years ago. And I hadn't even done deadlifts since high school. Okay. And 
I said, okay, well, I'm going to do squats and deadlifts because those are the core values that make your entire body stronger. I didn't realize that deadlifts actually make your entire body stronger. It's not just a leg thing because it's shoulders, arms, grip strength, and your, your, your core muscles, a lot of different things going on when you do deadlifts. And I was really weak when I started at that, you know, I was probably deadlifting 165, 170 pounds as reps. And, mm-hmm. and now I'm repping 365 pounds. And I do a little, I haven't maxed out in a while, but the last one was about 460. Dang, that's so awesome, my goal man. is to deadlift 500 before I'm 50. So I got two more years. That's super cool. I know when I got out of college, I was like burnout from working out, playing baseball. And I ended up finally getting back into the gym a couple of years later, ended up having an injury and it kind of set me in this point where now, you know, lifting heavy is something I don't risk as much and I miss it because there's something about lifting heavy weight that, you know, it's just challenging yourself yeah. mentally with that is, is good. And there's a lot, you know, it took me a while to learn that you don't need to put heavy weight on to get big. Actually, oh. you can get real big without doing heavy weight. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, really focusing on that mind muscle connection, right? It's but, a lot safer. Um, Oh yeah. But, uh, I miss doing the heavyweight. So pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. So you started that a little later. Um, you started your business on the side while working for corporate. What was the main primary reason why you were so hesitant when you had such proven results as a business owner, building businesses, communities, what was that primary reason why it, took you so long to really branch out and pursue full-time entrepreneurship? Man, I love that question. And it's, uh, it's very deep to think about this kind of stuff. Okay. So for context of people who don't know who I am, obviously I'm, I'm, you're, you're learning who I am on this show. I've built companies starting since 2001. So nearly 20 years as a business owner, but I also worked at engineering, corporate and project management, middle management and oil and gas industry. And for most of my career, my side businesses paid me more than my actual engineering career. And I wasn't some low level employee. I was making over $200,000 a year as an engineer, but my side businesses were paying me that plus more. And a lot of times people, even when I was working and, and close friends that I would meet like yourself, they would ask me, well, why are you still working, man? You have this business that's paying you so much. It's because I've gotten really good at making a lot of money in a short amount of time. So when I'm building online digital presence type businesses that don't require me to be physically present or physically working at some specific time, I can make money while I'm sleeping. I can make money while I'm on vacation. I can be making money even when you and I are speaking on this microphone right now. So I was very good at padding my engineering career by making extra money is what I was initially starting out as. It just grew and grew and grew and became millions of dollars. Okay. And so people ask me, why don't you quit? I was like, well, I, I only need like an hour a day at the most, sometimes even zero hours a day to go manage those online businesses. And me being a, such a busybody and being a productive person, I can't sit around all day. I actually like the socializing aspect of corporate. And I liked being a leader and learning different things from corporate because, you know, working for the major oil operators, managing hundreds of millions of dollars and the latest technology and subsea equipment, it's actually very exciting stuff because you're on technological advancement in the fronts of anything in the industry. And I was managing the biggest projects in the world. You don't think I gained a lot of experience from that? I mean, just the processes alone and learning about risk mitigation and managing big dollars without any you know, worry and things like that. Those all, all those skill sets, all those trainings 
translate into making a small business a lot easier than it, than it appears. So I actually had to reduce my level of knowledge to go manage small businesses when you think of it that way. So don't disregard your corporate experience out there if you're listening to this. Understand that you should be taking notes and seeing how you could apply the things you're learning for your own things outside of that job because most people don't do that. They just kind of go into this operation mode and they just go through the day-to-day of their normal routine at work, but they never really think about what am I actually learning here and is this something that I can take with me is this something that I can apply to my own goals? And most people don't think like that. But I was doing that even at age 15 at McDonald's. I was looking around and looking at the efficiencies and understanding the, the process flow and why they did things the way they did and how they became the number one you know, small fast food restaurant in the world back then. And so even at 15, I was very aware of things and thinking about how could I use this for my future stuff? So if you're listening, you're still working for somebody, think about things like that. But that was really the main reason is because I didn't, I had the time to do it. And for me growing up broke, I was like, why would I not go make $200,000 a year with an engineering degree that I put myself through school to get? And then the sunk cost fallacy steps in, Phil. It's it's looking at, I spent all this money in in seven years of my life to go to college. And it was very expensive and it was very excruciating period of my life. And I was broke and I was sleep deprived. I was working construction daytime and going to school at night and waiting tables on the weekends and working as a part-time mechanic on Saturday mornings. For seven years, I did that. And I felt like a zombie that was broke, that was kind of borderline depressed because I just didn't get enough rest. And I was always anxious and always felt like I was behind. And so when I get out of school and I get an engineering job and it's a 40-hour work week, to most people, that's a full-time job. To me, it felt like a part-time job. And I'm not advocating that you should go 24-7 hustle and grind like that. I think that was a horrible period of my life. But what it did say is that, okay, it's 4.30 in the afternoon. I'm home from my big boy job with the salary. What am I going to do now? Do I just, do I do what everybody else does and just sit on the couch and watch TV and complain on the internet about my life? Or do I go figure out how to do something and make something productive out of that? So I said, well, shit, I got a few hours before bedtime each night. Maybe I can teach myself some kind of skill and learn how to charge for that and make some money. So I taught myself how to do Photoshop to become a graphic designer. And I taught myself how to code HTML websites back then, early 2000s. And I would just build these one to three page websites for companies or individuals that weren't on the internet yet. And they would make four or $500 a website. And I could do one of those every weekend. So it was kind of an easy way to make money from home on my own time. That led into the corporate of me building LS1 Tech and PerformanceTrucks.net and things like that. It was that skill set. So when people ask me, you know, uh, what's the book that impacted your life the most, Tony? Thinking I'm going to give them something, maybe the Bible or just something, you know, it's like some holy grand book that they think that all the secrets are going to be in. And I'm just honest like that. I say, well, the book that actually impacted my life the most was an HTML coding book that I bought at Barnes and Nobles in probably 1998. And I just taught myself how to build web pages with that. And that changed my life. That's awesome, man. So cool. I know your book has been sort of life-changing for me. It was really the kick in the pants Hmm. for a guy who's super employee-minded. And that's not a bad thing. I don't mean that in a negative way. But wanting to become more business-minded. And that was one of our goals in 2020 was to become more business-minded. And, you know, as, as I went through your book, it was really sort of the, 
the manual for someone exactly like me, someone who didn't have that experience. I know you dumbed it way down. And I, and I say dumbed down. I just mean you, you really got down to the fundamentals and it wasn't what you set out to do for that book. How has this changed people's lives? I know it's been extremely successful and I know you're thinking about a future book and any insights into what we can expect from, from your future book. Yeah, the book is, the current book, Side Hustle Millionaire, was a, a validation and also business principles, okay? Most people want to create a product or a service without getting validation or confirmation of the idea before they produce it. So they'll go waste thousands of dollars and months of their time trying to build something only to unveil it and nobody buys it and they don't know why. So one of the biggest lessons you'll have for any product or service that you want to create or even a business model is that you need to go validate the idea with your potential audience. Who is it that you're trying to serve and would they actually buy this or would they pre-sell it and actually pull out their wallets? Because then they're really talking about it, right? So you talked about, yeah, me, you know, air quotes, dumbing it down. I had to do that because it's a very complex subject that I wanted to make sure everybody understood. You know, business principles are very difficult and to learn with people speaking at a professor level, right? Trying to, trying to impress you with their intellect and they're using all these big words and you're having to keep a thesaurus next to you to try to decipher this book that you're reading. I get that in academia, they try to do that. They try to one-up each other with their intellect by using a higher vocabulary. All of us can do that. You can do that. I can do that. And when I hear people speak like that, it doesn't impress me, right? So if you're going to be a speaker or someone that's effectively communicating, you need to use words that they understand. It ain't about your ego. It's about, hey, I need them to understand my message. I don't want them to be impressed by my vocabulary, just the message. So the book was, I was going to write this high level strategic entrepreneurship thing that I was very excited with all the stuff I'd learned in the last recent years. And that was in my mind for the book, the original book. And so I put it out there to my social media followers and friends. And I said, Hey, I'm going to write a book on business. What questions would you like answered? And I was thinking, you know, with a little bit of ego thinking, Oh, they're going to ask me all these advanced things and how they do this and this and that, how you make millions of dollars. And no, it wasn't out of that at all. The people were just going, well, what's an LLC? How did you get money to start the company? How do you name the company? How do you build a website that's effective? How do you get in the right mindset? Or how do you learn about financial and accounting? How do you get these terminologies figured out? And I was like, wow, this is all really basic stuff. And, you know, but an ego person would have said, well, those are basic things. I'm not going to write a book about that. That's so beginner level. Like I'm so far past that. A business person like me says, well, my customers are speaking very clearly about what they want from me. So I'm going to give them that. So I wrote the book and I said, if I can answer every single question they asked at a very high level of detail, give them a story behind it, teach them a lesson about the questions that they're asking and educate them with the things that they want. Guess what? I'm going to have this product, a book that's going to deliver and they're going to buy that because they like what they see. And that's what I did. And it became a number one bestseller on Amazon sold thousand copies just in the first week and has sold thousands since. So I used to talk about impacting thousands of people, but then I did that. And so I said, well, um, I guess I have to impact millions of people. That sounds a little weird to me, even a little bit now, but it's the truth. So I'm just going to roll with it. So now, yeah, you ask me now what my purpose is. It's to impact the generational legacy of millions of people by teaching them business principles and confidence, because that's the best reason I'm here on this planet to serve people. I think 
I love that, Tony, and not to cut you off, but I think that's such a great example of leadership because I'm a big believer that leadership is sacrificial. And so doing something like that, I think business owners, good business owners, all they do, and, and you know, famous folks like Gary Vee talk about this sort of stuff, like all they do is see needs. They, they, they listen to the marketplace and see what the people need and want, and then they give it to them. And so, you know, I love to see that. And I, I really think fundamentally leadership in a lot of ways comes down to just meeting the needs of people. And, um, you know, I think it's super cool. One of the, my favorite stories is how you named the book. Would, would you tell that, tell that story about how you named it and your, your insecurity initially with the side hustle billionaire? Absolutely. You know, that when you look at the title side hustle millionaire, side hustle millionaire, like some people will roll their eyes. Some people will automatically think, well, this guy's a scam and he's never done anything in his life. And look at this stupid title, like just shining in my face. And like, you know, you get a lot of you know, snarky comments around that. And I knew that because even the word millionaire, let's be honest nowadays, is a little bit overplayed because even from simple inflation and understanding like business, like $1 million is not a lot of money. We're buying houses that are three to $600,000 and even an SUV nowadays is $75,000, like it's pretty quick to go eat up a million dollars. So I get that there's a little desensitization around the word. And, and for me, I just didn't want that in there because that's not who I like portray myself as, right? And so I'm writing the book and the entire manuscript of the book, the title was The Hustle. Okay, because that's a little cliche word. It's kind of a dual purpose meaning because back when I was in the university, I was a nine ball collegiate, you know, billiards champion. So I I played a lot of pool when I probably should have been studying a little bit more, but I was very good at it. And even when I built these businesses in the automotive space, my online communities, my screen name was Nineball because only because the very first forum I ever joined was a billiards one and I just registered with that name. So I just kept the same username for everything I signed up so I didn't have to remember. And you know, so everybody knew me as Nineball for you know 15 years. So I thought the hustle would be a play, you know, to my old, you know, identity and also a play to business. And so I'm writing this book and I've given it to my editor, you know, a chapter at a time and he's reading and he's like, man, Tony, this book is like going to be great. I can tell because I've helped a lot of people become bestsellers. Like this book is going to be great. It's going to sell really well. And I was like, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. He goes, but we got to talk about the title, the title, the hustle. He's like, that sucks. And this guy has helped, you know, literally over 100 people become bestsellers on Amazon. And I'm going to take his advice because it was my first book. And I was like, well, what's wrong with the title? I tried to explain it to him. just like, I just explained to your listeners. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a bunch of BS. Like, quit that. Like, he goes, you're the side hustle millionaire. And at first I'm like, uh, I don't know about that. That just sounds kind of weird and arrogant and all those things in between. And he's like, okay, let's break this down. Did you not make millions of dollars? And I'm not talking about sales. Like I actually sold the company for millions of dollars. Did you not make millions of dollars from a side business? And I, I sat there and I said, well, I guess those are facts. And it's like, so what are they going to come at you with? Are they going to come at you with, you know, so you did it. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess you're right. So even then I was like, dude, let me sleep on it. And when I wake up tomorrow, I'll have a decision. Cause it was like, I didn't really want to change the title. And it just sounded weird. And, so I woke up and I talked to the wife about it and she's like, yeah, she's like, she's like the old you, the nine ball you is not relevant to what we're doing and what you're trying to create now. So you need to like be able to 
leave that old identity behind. And, and it was like, it was like a slap to the face where I had to like wake up in that moment. I remember I still remember the conversation. It's like nine ball is like old to you. That's not where we're going. Like, let that go. Like your car guys will still appreciate it, but let that go. And so, you know, the side hustle millionaire is what became the title. And honestly, it's one of the best titles that I've seen in that space because it does grab your attention. Because when I started reading these other books on starting side businesses, because I was doing research when I was writing mine and seeing what other people are seeing. And I was really excited to get books because I love to read. I was like, man, I can't wait to read this book. And maybe I'm going to learn something new in this that I didn't even know. And I was really excited. And I would read these books. And guys, it was depressing. I'm reading these books on side businesses and side hustles and $100 startups and all these different things. And the overarching theme that I saw in all these books that they had in common was they taught people to think too small. Think too small. Oh, you just want to make an extra $300 a month. I get it. If you're broke and, you, and you're struggling, that $300 is a lot, man. We can pay you for groceries and your family. But to me, it's like, I'm going to teach you that and teach you how to make $30,000 a month. Like, why are you settling for something so small? When you're reading these books from perceived experts about side businesses, none of them have made millions of dollars from their side businesses. They probably, you know, make six figures from selling books, teaching people how to make $300 a month. So it's like, dude, I need to get into this arena and actually teach people how to make real money to think bigger because I don't want you to limit your business ideas to making $1,000 a month because if that's the mentality you go into when you create the business, you're probably going to cap out at $1,000 a month because you created the wrong business. So I said, I got to get in this ring and help people think a lot bigger. I love that story because the title's awesome. Love the title. And it makes me think about all the things maybe I've neglected to do because of some fear or other people have great ideas and great things out there that they're, you know, they're just kind of like self-limiting and, and their own insecurities hold them back. I'm curious, have you had a moment? Cause I, I just had a friend of mine, Anthony Bass on the show this week. And he was talking about in his major league baseball career, what really pushed him to build the most confidence was the lowest point in his major league career where he had, he gave up two back-to-back home runs. He had, it was like his biggest failure moment. And, and it was odd to me that he said that's what helped him build his confidence the most as a pitcher. Have you had a moment like that where you had a big failure or a, a key moment that was really a turning point in your self-confidence? Man, I would say if you're going down the context of confidence, no, I, I think that I sort of stepped into that little by little as I went. I, I would say that I always knew that I wanted to be a leader even when I was a kid and you know, I'm half Japanese and I didn't start growing until my junior year of high school. Okay. So I was like, you know, hoping I would clear five foot tall back then. I'm, you know, five eleven now, so I'm normal sized <laughs> for all intended purposes, but I was looking at all these people, you know, we hear about, we learn leadership in school and I always thought that was bullshit. I was like, that's not true. That's like teachers have their favorite people. Our coaches have their favorite people. Maybe it's the son of the, the former football star or, you know, the town mayor's kid or whatever. There's always these reasons. There's political reasons behind a lot of things about getting opportunities to be leaders. And I always felt like that was kind of passed over a lot of times, except for my circle of friends. I kind of always felt like I was a leader of my circle of friends, even through all the rest of my, you know, my life so far. But, you know, certain corporate levels, I had to struggle and fight for those opportunities rather than like, you know, earn those like the right way. And so 
I started looking really when I started that first company, I was actually looking for external ways to become a leader. Okay. Because I didn't feel like I was getting those opportunities, even at my corporate job, because while I was fully capable of doing things and actually excelling sometimes of my supervisor's skills, which I've come to find that was pretty common through my, the rest of my career. I always got told that I had to wait my turn and just stand in line and, you know, like it'll come. And like, I, I hated that. I hated being told to wait in line and, and, and just, you know, your time will come. And, you know, you're sitting in a small cube vying for the medium sized cube and the medium sized cube vying for the fake office that looks like a cube just because it has glass doors and then vying for the corner office that finally actually has a door on it. So it's like, this is the whole thing that we play in corporate. And I'm like, why am I playing this game when I've got this stupid side businesses that are paying me more than my boss makes and my boss's bosses make? Like, why am I still playing this game? And, you know, it's like, so confidence for me came from action. A lot of times people think that they got to get confident to get to take action. They got it backwards. As soon as you realize that that's backwards, and you realize that I may lack confidence right now because I haven't the experience and I, and I don't necessarily know all the answers. But the problem is, is you have to take the action to get the confidence. So you may be in, you know, lack of confidence and not, not believe in yourself, but you got to take that baby step. You just got to take something, take some forward step, no matter how small it is and realize that, okay, I did that step. So I'm going to get a little bit of confidence with that step because I did it, did it. Maybe not got the result I wanted, but I did it. Now I could take the next step. A little bit more confidence comes. And you take enough of these little baby steps, the steps start to get a little bit bigger and you start to get a little bit more bricks of confidence building your wall of confidence. And when you start to look back, you traveled miles and miles, hundreds of miles, and you built all this confidence over time. So you have to take those steps and you have to do them even when you don't feel confident. That's the only way to get confidence. I love that. Take action. And taking that action builds your confidence. I think so many are just hesitant to take those steps because they really fear failure. And I, I had turning points in my life where um, I had failures and it really just pushed me to this point. And, and I feel like you kind of get to these, these low points and you kind of talked about, you know, having that point of frustration. I, I feel like there's these, these clear sort of mentality turning points we all have. And I thought it was interesting you, you mentioned you were thinking about leadership as a 15 year old, you know, that's, that's probably a little unusual. Um, what is your approach to leadership and how do you approach leadership? You've obviously led and built massive online communities of people, which is very impressive. So, you know, how do you approach leadership? What's your overall leadership mentality? I learned from a good role model, my dad. My dad was a staff sergeant, U.S. Marines, Vietnam vet. And after he got out of the military, he worked in the chemical refineries his entire career until he retired a couple of years ago. And I got to see him with his friend circles. And also I worked with him two summers when I turned 18 in the construction business also. And I got to see how he interacted with people and also had some good football coaches along the way. I think that was important to, to highlight the sports coaches also formed me. And I got to see good examples of coaches and bad examples of coaches. And then I've had bosses that were terrible and I've had bosses that were you know, amazing. So I've always identified who the strong leaders were. And I started to think about what is it that they do that makes them a leader? And I would take mental notes along the way. And I would ask myself, is that something within my capability or is that something that's outside of my character or my core values that I wouldn't necessarily do? So I basically just made these mental notes 
And if you want to be a leader, and I love that your show is based on the subject, you need to study leadership just like you would study a language or a new curriculum or read a book. If you want to be a leader, you've got to realize that nobody's born a leader. That's a big fallacy as well. Some people are like, well, some people are natural born leaders. Disagree. Totally disagree because leadership is a skill set that you learn from applications and studying. So go study those people that you perceive to be good leaders who have demonstrated great results. Find the littlest things, the strategies. How do they communicate? What is it that they have reputation-wise? What do people think about them and their leadership? Are they compassionate? Do they have empathy? Do they, they say the right things to make people work instead of you know, turn people away? And so I remember hearing these things third party from my dad's you know, employees and, and friends who would say, your dad's a good man. Like he's, he's one of the best leaders we've known. He's a good man. And, it, and I heard this over and over and over for years. And so I'll, I had, you know, validated the idea that he was a good leader and I got to see him, you know, he was a little league coach of mine as well in baseball, you know, so I got to see him lead other kids and treat people fairly. And he's never said a racist rem remark in his life and he treats everybody equal. My mom's Japanese, so obviously he couldn't be racist. So you think about those kind of things, <laughs> you, you just think, okay, so this is a good, this is a good example of leadership and, you know, the bad one. So for me, to be a, to be the best type of leader, you have to be a, I would say a servant leader, a humble leader. You have to be someone that's engaged and part of the community or team that you're building. You can't put yourself on a pedestal and think that everything's about you because that's ego again. And ego is, destroys a lot of different things. So it's okay to have that sense of ego, but then you got to catch it with your awareness and realize that, no, I need to be embedded. I need to be in the trenches working with the team with the people that are you know, follow me and engage with them. Cause there's a lot of people out there, especially doing what I do now, being a speaker and a coach and an influencer space. There's a lot of people out there that put themselves on a pedestal and they make themselves unapproachable. And they, you like to act like there's some kind of a, a mystery about them, you know, these kind of things. And like, I'm superhuman and I'm only perfect. And you guys are mere mortals. And they make you believe that kind of shit. And that's very prevalent out there. And, for me, it's like, dude, I've built massive communities with 300,000 members and 260,000 members and 100,000 members. Like I've repeated this process over and over. Now I'm building that with entrepreneurship. So to me, it's just being accessible and being a part of the community and contributing value and answering questions and encouraging people and throwing that like when they're not getting any other likes from people and just showing them that you're still present, that you're there, that you care and encouraging them to become better versions of themselves by challenging them and seeing the potential within them that they may not necessarily see themselves. And then also, you have to think about building the strength of bonds between your community members. And I think this is another place that you fail if you're not embedded within your community. So people will basically say, I'm the leader and I'm super awesome and you guys are just my followers. That's how they think a lot of times nowadays, the Instagram life. For me, I look at my followers and my audience and the listeners and I look at them and I go, you know what? I want that one and that one to become best friends. And I want that one and that one to become best friends. And I want these 10 people to become best friends. So as a leader, my goal, my job is to facilitate those you know, communications and meetups and bonds to make my party, my group, my audience strong, make them very you know, bonded to each other because they're going to remember where they met. And they're going to keep coming back and reconvening where they met. And they're going to tell their friends where they met. 
so that builds the community stronger and I'm always going to be a part of that type of structure. I love that, Tony. I can vouch for you. You definitely are a very active member of your own society and, and really this 365 driven society, you know, I have an opportunity to join that and it's been a waterfall of growth here in 2020 and it's super cool to see how your society's grown. Just got done with your first event. I know you're planning others in the future. Talk a little bit about the society, what you're doing there and what's to come in uh, the time ahead. So 365 Driven Society, uh, I touched on that as entrepreneurship, support, mentorship, and education society. And, you know, when I started thinking about in 2015, how I was going to impact the world, I said, well, I got a lot of good skills. And one of those building massive communities around things I have passion for. The earliest passions I had were cars and business. Even as a kid, dude, I'd go to the grocery store and my mom would be shopping. I'd go straight to the magazine racks when they still had those. And I would thumb through pages of Hot Rod magazine. And then I would go look at Entrepreneur and, and Forbes magazines and thumb through that. And I grew up broke. I didn't know anything about business or money, okay? But I knew looking at the covers of Entrepreneur and Forbes, there was something interesting about them. And I didn't know the terminology and what they were talking about and investing and capital, you know, this or that. And I was like, what the hell is this? But I would read it every time. And, and I would actually get a subscription to some of those. And I would try to read them and try to decipher them. And if you read them enough, you start to figure out what they're talking about. It's like learning a new language. So I was that kid that loved cars and business. And when I think about it now, it's like, okay, so my purpose on this planet is to teach something that I love. And if everybody knows about my car life, did successful businesses with cars. So now I'm going to go do it with business. And I started it in, in May of 2017, really as a support group around the book that I was writing, which came out in you know, a little bit later in early 18. And that's where it started. It was like 40 people originally, and it kind of grew from there. And I just used the same leadership principles and business principles that I built those massive car communities to do it for entrepreneurship. Some subject that a lot of people have in common, a lot of people have passion for. And so I just basically take the same business model, the same core values, the same ethics, and I just do it to a different subject. And it's grown and grown and grown. It's thousands of members now. And there's a lot of people out there that aren't still in the group, even though they listen to the show. There's thousands of people listening to the show, but not all in the group. So it's like not everybody's on Facebook. I get it. You know, I'm looking for external platforms now to kind of take it off of Facebook because some of the things I disagree with the way they're running their business. And I know that I don't want my audience and my members to be subjugated to something being on that that's not in my control, right? I don't get to control yeah. the, the quality or the access of that. And it's only going to get worse. So I'm building this thing out to, to scale to millions of people. That's my goal is to have millions of people that change their lives by learning business principles and having the support network of other fellow entrepreneurs, the mentorship of, of me and people that I'm going to assign to coach those people online programs that teach them the strategies and tactics to be able to become successful and go out on their own. And it's going to be like a one-stop shop for entrepreneurs just to really get what they need on a social level, education level, and an encouragement level. Super awesome, Tony. If, if I can I totally speak from my experience that from a leadership development, from a business mindset development, and a huge, I mean, huge value being a part of that group and I'm curious. I saw you mentioned getting off of Facebook. The London Real guy has been having troubles with YouTube. I don't know if you're familiar with London Real. And yeah, I saw he was running for the mayor of London. Are you going to run for the mayor of Houston? 
Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, oh, man. The, the, as much as I enjoy politics, I think that it takes a special type of person to go want to sit around with a bunch of other assholes. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's definitely an interesting political environment these days. So yeah. why are you staying in Houston Metro? I'm curious, you know, it seems like you've got the freedom to go just about anywhere you'd like. What, what why Houston? I think it's just something that me growing up here, you know, my entire life, my family's still here and I love Houston. You know, I don't have any negative things about because I've been all over the world to uh, every major city I can think of. And we have a lot of redeeming factors for this city and it doesn't get the credit that it deserves. And, you know, a lot of people talk about New York and San Francisco, like, no, thanks. I've been to both those several times. I would never want to live there. So we all got to look at this thing as we're seeing all these people leaving California and New York and Illinois and things like that, moving to Texas now, like Texas is cool. I mean, Joe Rogan, number one podcaster is moving here. Elon Musk moved to Texas. Like all these people are coming to Texas now and you're like, do I really want to leave? I mean, maybe I was just ahead of the curve, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. start thinking about that. So, you know, Lisa and I, we, we basically think about, maybe downsizing the current house. Cause we built a dream house when I sold my first company here in the in acreage and North side of Houston. And we don't really need this giant house and all the property. Okay. It's kind of like an anchor. And that's another thing that you may not understand is when you start to buy all the stuff, it becomes an anchor, right? You start looking at all the stuff that you got to sell and get rid of. And yeah, it sounds like first world problems to listeners, but the thing is, it is, it really is an anchor right? You just overwhelm. That's kind of like when I talked about going to the gym just to get back to zero, mm -hmm. it would take me uh, probably years to sell crap just to get back to like not having anything as an anchor. Yeah. So Houston is an anchor right now, but what I would like to have is maybe a few smaller homes around the country in different areas that we enjoy visiting. And those can be Airbnb out again, that's a, another you know, revenue generating business model sure. idea. And we get to enjoy those things because literally the things that I do and she does, we don't have to be anywhere. I mean, when I'm in Spain and Portugal and England and France, I'm even floating on a vessel offshore. I was still managing my businesses. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to be anywhere or any time to make money. So when you start to have that freedom of space and you know time and, and be able to buy what you want, like all these independence freedoms, that's true freedom. And I don't care how much you get paid. I'd rather have those freedoms. Yeah. You talk about your, your home being an anchor. I've got another mentor. He talks about avoiding distractions and that's, that's really what he's talking about is all those things that we have in our lives that just are huge distractions that keep us from moving toward achieving our goals in, in business or, or whatever we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Lightning round. We're going to do a random lightning round and a business lightning round. You already said your favorite book. I know it's a question you get all the time. Favorite movie. Oh man, I would say Tombstone. Ah, okay. Favorite restaurant? Man, I don't have a favorite restaurant. We eat out so many different places, but I will say that when we travel, we don't eat at chain, chain restaurants. We always look for local restaurants. Okay, okay. Favorite food? Chicken fried steak, mashed potatoes, and green beans because that was like a comfort food when I was growing up, even though I don't really eat it now because it's so unhealthy but that's my favorite meal. Favorite place to travel? Hmm, Spain. I would definitely, Spain is one of the countries I've been a few times and I could actually live there. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. We, we got Spain on our list. We haven't been to Spain quite yet. All right, now we're business lightning round. 
most common mistake you see business owners making? I think the most common mistake I see business owners making is not understanding that they need to learn business skills and principles before they start a business. I think a lot of times they rely too heavily on their technical knowledge or skill set. Maybe they've learned in their career. And although they're highly paid in their career, they take business skills and knowledge for granted because they think they can just rely on the other things. Like, for example, like maybe, maybe you're a great mechanic and you're the best mechanic in town and you've got customers coming to your shop just wanting you to work on their car. And you think about, well, you know what? Why does my boss get to drive the new F-350 in a Lamborghini and sit in the air condition while I'm sweating my ass off out here? And, you know, he's making all the money off of me and you're starting to feel like you're underappreciated. And you're like, I'm just going to go open my own shop because I could do what he does and I'm the best mechanic. Well, that's the kind of ego that gets you broke because you need to be studying business skills, marketing skills, accounting skills, all these things that are required to make an efficient and you know, highly profitable business before you decide to leave that job. And once you've invested in those other skills at the same level that you invested in your technical skills, then you got a lot better odds of success. And I think a lot of people jump the ship too early and they don't invest in themselves or hire someone that can teach those skills. So don't think that your technical skills and your physical skills are going to make you a successful business owner. Most important thing every business owner should be doing. I think that marketing is one of the things I see a lot of people fail at. And for most people, they'll basically market until they're busy. And they think that they just stop marketing when they get busy because, you know, it's just like, oh, I just go out there and market and then I get business and then I can kind of slow down on my marketing. But that's, that's a failure way of thinking. Marketing is something you should be doing all the time, really 24-7, literally, with all these social media and things nowadays, if your business applies to that. But you should always be building your brand and your marketing, no matter how busy you are, whether you're slow or, or backlogged, because it's all about presence of mind. People need to see your brand over and over and over. Sometimes they're going to see your brand come across their screen seven to nine times before they decide to even do business with you. And even if you're busy, that's okay because you don't ever see like Nike, like quit advertising their shoes or you don't see like Chevrolet quit advertising their vehicles when they're having record sales. They, just, they basically just compound the marketing because marketing is all about presence of mind, top of mind, who's going to get my money when I decide I need that product or service because I've seen the things over and over. It's been pounded into my mind and I've referred people. And if you turn it off, when a lot of people get busy and they go, you know, I don't need to market so much. We're super busy. What happens is that when you go off of the radar and nobody sees your stuff anymore, they start wondering if you went out of business. You could be really busy, but they wonder if you're out of business. Like, is everything going all right over there? I haven't seen any of their ads lately. Like, I don't know if I want to spend my money with them because, you know, I'm a Chevy guy, but Ford is advertising a lot more. So maybe there's something wrong with them because you went ghost. And, and that even applies to individuals. If you're a coach or if you're doing something, you're building something and you go ghost for a few months, people are going to think the negative, they go straight to negative. Yeah. And that's not going to be easy for you to recover from. I think that's a key communication point for leaders to, to remember too, because I, I have this saying that I, I wrote in a lyric to a song I wrote a long time ago, but it's people who don't talk have something to hide. And when mm. something feels wrong, you're usually right. And I think, you know, when you see people go ghost like that, there's, it's, there's always something kind of wrong, right? And, yeah. and, and your, your mind le it just goes turning. Um, I like that phrase, by the way. That's a good lyric. Yeah, I appreciate it. Best business advice you've ever received? 
Who, man, that's a lot of stuff wrapped into one question. I would say the, the, the most simple thing that might apply to these listeners right now is just to start. I think, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to, you have to take the action to get the confidence and you have to understand that you need to quit pounding your brain with all this information and thinking that you're not ready and like, you know, waiting for the perfect time, whatever that is, people keep saying perfect time is today. And understand that you won't have all the answers until you start to take actions and actually see the results, good or bad. And that's okay because the best entrepreneurs get punched in the face and they fall down and they get back up. I mean, you love baseball. Like, let's get some baseball analogies with failure, okay? What is the Hall of Fame batters? What is their average? Like average? Like what, Three, what 300-ish. Yeah, and that's good. 300 is good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So think about these people. The Hall of Fame, the best batters in the history of baseball, only hit 300, which means three out of 10. Ten times they step to the plate, they only hit three. And that's not even just home runs. That's just hits, okay? That's just maybe getting on base right there. So how many of those were strikeout or pop-outs or how many were home runs, right? So most people that don't understand business, they think like, man, I'm just going to go all in this one business, and, but I got to study, I got to learn all this stuff. And they, and they put it off and they, you hear these people at work and they're like, man, someday I'm going to be a business owner. Someday I'm going to do this someday. It's like someday, someday, someday. It's not a day of the week. Like quit saying that it's today. Go start, go create an LLC, go force yourself to build a website, go spend a little bit of money and just do it and just walk around in those shoes and feel that and realize that your first business may not be the successful business, but Maybe you build 10 more and then you have three that make millions, right? So understand that you got to use these analogies and understand that you don't have to go all in and like quit because your first idea failed. The things that you learn from those failures, you carry with you to the next business ideas and you get a little bit better and you get a little bit better and you get a little bit better. Like most people don't realize, like I started nine companies, nine different companies. How many were successful? Three. There's that ratio again, right? Yeah, yeah. So I love that, Tony. I, I had a realization the other day when my wife and I were out to dinner, I was sitting in this restaurant and I was looking around and it was, it was literally the, so, I mean, I'm 31, Mm -hmm. my whole life in restaurants, all sorts of settings, right? All sorts of been in and out of all sorts of businesses, right? It was literally the first time in my life that I really had the perspective of somebody like invested to like create this place that I, you know, I'm sitting here. And this is somebody's like livelihood that I'm, that I'm sitting in. And I think it was just because of like COVID and everything going on and hearing about these businesses closing. Like it was really the first time in my life and it sounds stupid, but like, I really realized like, man, this business stuff, I mean, it's huge. And people, I think, get afraid to fail so much that, that they limit their goals. So we, we talk about goal setting all the time and it's like you set goals that, Oh, you know, they need to be smart goals, let's say, and they need to be achievable. And, and, you know, depending on your mindset, you might set a goal to where, you know, you can achieve it. It's like, well, why don't you, why don't you stretch that goal farther and not fear that failure? You know, what's, if failure is really how we're going to learn and be successful, then, then let's not be so afraid to fail. And there's situations where failure is not acceptable. Right. But um, what are your thoughts on, on goal setting and how do you, how do you take that fear of failure and balance that with setting achievable goals. Well, first of all, I want to talk about the restaurant that you just mentioned. Okay. So 
what you did is you basically moved to the other side of consumer to being a producer mind. And the reason you weren't aware before that is because those business owners had spent so much time and planning and effort to create an experience for you. And so you're basically blinded by the actual experience of being at the restaurant and the food and the music and the service. Like that's the experience that you got to enjoy. That's what they're selling you is the experience. So that means they actually did a really good job if you didn't find the awareness because awareness, the chink in the armor works when you go visit the bathroom and it's like horrendous and like you go, Oh crap. I wonder what the kitchen looks like. See, so that's a, that's a breakdown in experience that makes you kind of, step out of the experience and go, whoa, like, should we be eating here? See? So the fact that you kind of do that on your own and catch that awareness, you're starting to get that entrepreneurial mindset. You're starting to look at what could they do better? What could I do better if I built something like this? What would I change? Do I like the decor? That lamp, that lamp hanging on the ceiling over there just doesn't match like what this theme is. Like you start to pick things apart, but you know what? That's what entrepreneurs do because we're always scanning the horizon of businesses and ideas and thinking about what we could just change by 1%. Because if we can change something and improve something, whether that's efficiency or service or quality or price by 1%, you actually may have a viable business model. It ain't about being an inventor. It ain't about trying to be like Elon Musk, like super visionary as an entrepreneur. It's about how do I make things better? Simple things and little things. So I'm glad you, you shared that. That was a pretty cool experience. Now, Goal setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smart goals. How do you balance fear of failure with setting achievable goals? Man, this is, this is tough, okay, because I've had to go through this my whole life, right? First of all, let, let's look at some common fallacies out of the way that really hold people back. We, we call these self-limiting beliefs, and everybody has them. It just depends on the environment you grew up in, your, your perceived mentors, your family, your friends, they you know, create these actual beliefs that you truly believe and don't have any doubt about, but they're really not going to help you get it where you want to go. So if you ever say something like, I'll never be able to afford that, or I'll never be a millionaire. You say things like that, very common to hear, guess what? You'll never be able to afford that and you will never be a millionaire. And it's because you've already convinced your brain that it's impossible and you don't even believe for it for yourself. So it's never going to happen. So you're thinking, well, shit, Tony, what do I say instead of that? Well, you say that I can't afford that yet, or I'm not a millionaire yet. A simple, subtle change keeps the open opportunity in your brain that there's a potential for that, and you're not shutting your brain down. Because here's the thing about goals. If you set really low goals or you don't have any goals at all, which is mostly the common thing, when you ask people, hey, what are your goals? They're not going to give you any answer. They have no, they don't have, they don't understand what their purpose is. And I get that you don't know your purpose. It changes over time, but most people don't even have goals, right? And that's sad. But the thing is, is they set these goals that are too low a lot of times. And then they think that that's the benchmark. And then it's like the struggle to get to that goal. And then they may never get there because they've created that as a glass ceiling that's going to limit their potential. So these self-limiting beliefs have to go and, and, it was really hard for me to go through that because I, I thought about that too. Because like one of the other common fallacies that I grew up believing is that it takes money to make money. And you see this all over Facebook and all kinds of people still say it to this day. And that's the middle-class mantra. That's the mindset. Like it takes money to make money. No, it, it takes work and it takes effort to make money. Is it easier to make more money when you have money? Yeah, absolutely. But when you say it that way, it becomes like this 
this limiting thing like, well, I guess I don't have money, so I guess I'm not going to start a business. I started my first business for $350. Actually, the first business that I talked about was the cost of that book and me practicing on my crappy computer at home to learn how to build a website. That book was probably like $10. Right. So, you know, it doesn't take money to make money. It just makes it easier later on. So most people like use that as an excuse because they think, you know, like me being a kid, I thought that being a business owner, you had to be rich already, you know, because nobody in my family owned a business. Nobody in my family went to school. They, right. The richest person, air quotes, in my family was the Uncle Hollis with a double wide trailer on a couple acres. We thought he was rich, you know, just because yeah. he had more. So perspectives do change, but you never want to limit yourself and say like, I can't do that or I'll never be able to afford that. Or if you look at somebody that's highly successful, maybe they drive by in that, that truck or that car that you've been desiring and you see it in your magazine and you're like, must be nice. If you've got that kind of negative mindset about the success of other people, you will never have that for yourself because what that's telling you is you've got a limiting belief mindset. You're in a fixed mindset, not a growth mindset. And when you understand that and you gain awareness, like, oh crap, I said that, that's like fixed mindset. It fixed means like I'm fixed in place. It's never going to change. I'm going to be teaching my kids that same fixed mindset and they're not going to believe that they can become successful either. Because if you would have asked me as a kid, if I was going to be a millionaire, I would have said no. No, it's like, no way. Like nobody in my family, like my dad was the first one in the family with, with a house that didn't have wheels on it. Right. You think I'm going to be a millionaire? Like it's just not in for me. Like I didn't, I didn't grow up with money, you know, like all these excuses. So you have to set goals. Really. I don't even like the achievable goal thing because I think people set their goals too low. So set milestones. Okay. Set milestones. Go, okay. My next milestone, which for people don't understand what that term is. It's like, Hey, it's a, it's a destination to get to. We're going to pass on our journey. It's just, it's a stopping point. It's a rest stop on a road trip. Mm-hmm. So my next rest stop, my next milestone would be to make $200,000 a year with this business. It's not my goal. It's a milestone because you realize we're, we're going to drive on through and keep going to the next milestone after that. Most people really think about goals, even for a fitness journey. It, cra- it cracks me up. Okay. They think I'm going to lose 20 pounds or they say, I'm going to go to the gym and, and get strong. And they, and they set these finite finish line type goals instead of milestones. And then they achieve that goal and they're like, yeah, and they're celebrating. Everybody's golf clapping and going, yeah, congrats. You know, you hit that goal, man. And then you see them a few months later and they've let themselves go again. They quit going to the gym and they just kind of fell back into their old habits. And you think about why is that? It's because they were so fixated on that goal as a finish line instead of seeing it as a milestone. They didn't realize that the entire objective of starting that business or going on that career path or going on a fitness journey is actually to change your, your lifestyle and your mindset to carry you forward and keep improving instead of a finish line. So you got to be understanding that even a lot, like a race, like if you're racing, you're an athlete, you don't race to the finish line. You race through the finish line. You run through the finish line as fast as you can yards past it, because that's where you start to think about it. So I don't like goals. I like milestones. I like that. Milestones are great. I'm going to remember that one. So how much money did it take you to start your business? The first, the first, uh, big LS one tech $350. Yeah. So recently, you know, and some of the, the things that we've begun with GLE and, and, uh, some of the other things I'm doing in real estate, it was the first time in my life I realized you, you just don't, and, and your book was really kind of the turning point for me. And, and hearing your story is like, you just don't need money to start a business really. 
It's never been easier. It's actually super easy nowadays to start a business compared to 20 years ago. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I know Kiyosaki talks about the best entrepreneurs raise capital. And even, I mean, even if you do need money to do whatever you're trying to do, it doesn't necessarily have to be yours, you know? And that, you know, people, it's all those limiting beliefs. Like, well, I don't have the money, so I can't do it. And it's like, well, no, you could do it. You just need to find the money. So go find it. You just touched on a huge limiting belief that I see so often, even from a few people that are inside the group that I had to, you know, educate them differently about that money, that money mindset. Kiyosaki's book's great. If you haven't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, it's a, it's an entry level entrepreneurship thinking book that everybody probably should read. That was one of my first you know, personal development mindset books. It's very rudimentary looking back now, but it's very important to grasp that concept. And you talked about, you know, that using other people's money, right? Leveraging credit or something like that to make money. That's the secret of the wealthy. Okay. Here's the middle-class broke mindset that I grew up with. We're proud when we say I'm debt free. That's one phrase. And the other one is like, I pay cash for everything. I heard that one many times, like, like most people would say, like, if you can't pay cash for it, you can't afford it. And, yeah. and that's the mindset. Okay. So yeah. if you are that person listening, or you've had friends or family teaching you this, and, and you maybe heard that and go, well, I agree with that, Tony, because I'm debt free and I pay cash for everything. If you believe that, guess what? You've got a limiting mindset. Yeah. You don't understand how the wealthy play the same game as you. We think about percentages on return. And I'm going to get, try to make it really simple for you. Let's say that you go get a low interest loan because nowadays that's really easy. Now, let's say, let's say we get a low interest loan for $100,000 and it's 3% interest. Yeah, really low interest. Okay. And you're like, well, okay, well, that's debt. Like, oh my God. Like people are like, oh, that's $100,000 debt. It's 3% interest. You're going to make these little payments and it's only going to card cost you 3% annually. Okay. So $3,000 a year is what their fee is. You go make that, you could take that $100,000 and, you, and, you, and it's a business loan, for example, and you go create your business and use that money to start your business and it starts to make profit. And let's say you're at a typical 25% profit margin on the business. So what that means is you're making 25% of whatever you're putting into the business, you're getting 25% return. So then you go compare those two percentage rates. The loan is only costing you 3%. The business is making you 25%. So if you do simple math, you're profiting 22%. And most people don't think like this. Mm -hmm. So I'm literally making 22% of an investment in my business with somebody else's money that I didn't even have to risk and only paying them 3% back. That's how wealthy people become wealthy. They use leveraged credit with good rates and they go outrun the percentage ratio. Now I get, if you're a crappy business person and you go borrow a hundred thousand at 3% and you start a business for a hundred thousand and it only makes 3%, you're basically just created a business just to pay for the loan. And that's just mm -hmm. terrible business, right? But <laughs> most business models are 20 to 40%, like most business models. Now digital space, digital products, closer to 80 to a hundred percent profit. Cause if you build it once, you could just copy paste it and duplicate these digital products and mm -hmm. then go out the door. The automotive businesses I built with digital advertising, I didn't have to create a product or manufacture anything. It was an 88% profit margin. So I was only putting in very small amount of money 
and making a whole lot on the back end. And that's why I like those kind of business models. That's so funny when you talk about that, that mindset of not using credit and no, I'm debt free and paying cash for everything. I was like 25, I think when I got my first credit card and I was just stubborn. I, I had no credit. I went to try to, uh, I was going to go buy a vehicle. My first vehicle that I purchased from the dealer myself, because I had driven like a 91 Honda Accord that I bought for like a couple, couple thousand dollars off a family member. Right. And I went to the, the dealer. I didn't have any credit. I had a bunch of cash though, but now looking back, it's like, that's a stupid way to buy vehicles. Yeah. You, you'd rather have that cash. You, yeah. Cash I'd rather have the cash better. and just finance it. And, and you, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways you can, you can be smart with leverage and, and, you know, they talk about the wealthy not paying taxes and it's because all their money's leveraged. And yeah. they, they incentivize business owners who are providing hundreds and thousands of jobs and housing for people to do those things. And, yeah, and they, they reinvest them, the money back into the company. They don't have right. to pay tax on it because it's actually not a profit when you reinvest the profit back into your company. And if you're going to raise the taxes on businesses, that's just going to hit the consumer and it's going to yeah. hit the employees. I mean, it's just yeah. it's crazy. Business owners don't pay more taxes. I mean, that, and when you're going after people saying like big corporations need to pay more tax, like, they're not going to pay more tax. They're just going to raise the prices. Like, let's be real. A business by design is set to create a margin. You know, you're, you're basically know what your raw goods cost, your employees cost, your manufacturing cost. Like all these are, are fixed costs that don't change. So you know what it costs you to build that product. And if someone like the government goes, well, we're going to you know, make you pay more tax. Well, okay, that becomes another cost. So that reflects in the price. So whatever they're selling, you just became more expensive. So the consumer ends up paying those taxes, not the business. Tony, been having a blast, man. Thanks for staying long. I'm losing track of time here. Want to ask you one final question before we wrap up. If you had only three pieces of advice, up to three, you can be one, two, or three, to leave with the world. You know, my perspective on, on sharing content's really changed since joining your groups and really understanding that legacy mindset of, you know, who, who knows who could benefit from even the smallest thing that that someone shares and who knows who's going to see all this content in the future, you know? So thinking with that perspective, the generations into the future might see this, what are the most important things you'd want to leave with them? I think the most important thing on an individual basis is that people need to learn to not worry about what other people think or say about them. I think that's number one. And I'm going to give you some details on that because a lot of times we don't start that business or go on that fitness journey or start that business or do anything because we're so worried about not the failure. That's what we tell ourselves. We're worried about what other people think about our failures. We're worried about what your neighbors or your friends or your family are going to say when you fail and fall on your face, because we don't like to put ourselves in potentially embarrassing situations. And so we avoid that entire thing because we're so worried about what other people think about us. When you start to think about these people that are going to laugh at me or ridicule me or criticize me, and you will have those people. I'm not going to say that. I'll get into that in a second. Would they ever buy anything from me? Would they ever give me a loan? Would they ever refer somebody to me? Would they you know, just support me in any way? And when you look at those individuals, which is a small percentage of the people you know, the answer is no. They're not going to support you. They're not going to golf clap for you. They're just going to look for ways to ridicule you and bring you down, Okay. So when you think about, okay, mortality, we don't live forever. Time is very important. Let's say that you do live a long life. Let's say you make it to that deathbed and you're surrounded by people that truly love you. And you're looking around and seeing who's in the room. Are any of those haters in that room? Are any of them in that room? 
So you made it to the final days of your life and you're looking around and you really think any of those haters and critics that you're so worried about and you're hiding from will be in that room? Answer is no, they're not going to be there. So why do we put our lives on hold? Why do we hide in the shadows? Why do we not start businesses? Why do we not worry about failing? Why do we not do the fitness journey? Why do we not worry about putting ourselves out there or writing that book to get your message or launching the podcast or doing anything to get attention? Why do we avoid that? Because of fear of critics and they control our lives until the day we die. And those people aren't going to be there for your funeral. So we need to stop thinking about these people who are really holding you back in your life they're not going to be at your funeral. You wasted your entire life. You'll have a life full of regret. People get on their deathbeds. They don't regret the things they did and failed. Actually, they learn things. Failure is a lesson. They, they're excited about stuff. They would go back and, you know, I would do that again because I learned this, this, and this, and it happened later and became successful because of those, those adversity moments. But they're always going to regret the things they didn't do. And you don't want that to be you, and you get to control that. So, the sooner you can get away from worrying about what other people think or say about you, you're going to feel a huge sense of freedom and you're going to be able to do what you want and think what you want to do and just take actions. So a little bit about the critics and haters in our group, as you know, Philip, we encourage you to go earn your haters and find your haters and find your critics because for most people, we're wired to make other people pleasing, you know, people pleasers, and we want to make people happy and we want to make people like us. Okay. So when they put their message out there initially, they're, they're warm vanilla. They're basically just not trying to rock the boat and they're just kind of trying to make everybody happy and they're trying to get everybody to get along. Kumbaya, let's all hold hands and everything's great. And then they don't get the traction that they want and they're, core values are, are, are screaming at them inside, but they're not putting out their, their true message and the things and the people that they want to serve. And they're not making the impact that they want. So you got to be a little bit more polarizing without being confrontational or antagonistic. Polarizing just simply means you're speaking your own internal gospel, things that mean something to you that you're willing to fight and stand for. Because when you start to be a little bit of polarizing by telling people how you truly think, on all things, you're going to push away the people that you don't want to serve, which is a great thing. Okay. You're going to drive people away and that's great, but you're also going to greatly attract the people that resonate with your message and your mission and your purpose and the things that you're saying. So when you think about this, do you want people to like you or do you want people to love you? And for most people that are wise, they say, I don't want people to love me. Well, in order for them to do so, they need to know what you stand for, what you're about, what your purpose is, the things that you agree with and disagree with, and you need to be bold about those. And here's the other thing about that's the addition to that. Go read the book Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's a classic. And like it's over 100 years old, I believe. But in that book, he teaches people to become a free thinker. And I know that's kind of a trendy thing, but most people don't understand what that means. Well, a free thinker is somebody that's able to observe all the different things that are going on out there and make critical thinking skills about what that, what aligns with their core values. What do I believe based on this evidence and the experience I have and the wisdom and any information I've been able to gather and study at a high level of detail to make a final decision. And for a self-reliant type person, they're not going to hold on to their old opinions based on ego or status 
or reputation. They're going to be able to have the freedom to change their mind based on new information, new experience, new data. And when you become that way, you start to contradict yourself and some people will accuse you of flip-flopping. But the thing is, they don't understand that they're the ones that are stuck in a fixed mindset because we have a lot of people out there, especially in corporate and high-level CEOs and these people that are notoriety-type-based people, or even in politics. They've changed their mind internally, but they're afraid to say that because they're holding on to status quo and their old reputation and all these things that define their past. And they're, they're really fixated on just holding on to that and not openly saying what they think about today. That makes them a weak individual. You're not a leader. You're a totally weak individual when you don't hold things like that. So you got to be willing to put your voice out there and be firm with what you believe today. And if that changes tomorrow, be equally firm tomorrow with what you believe tomorrow. And that's what becomes self-reliance truly means in becoming a free thinker. And I've done that for a few couple, you know, several years of my life. And that's why people gravitate toward me because I'm just going to tell it like it is every single time. And if I believe changes, it changes. That's a key value of leaders all over the world, man. Integrity. And a part of that is having the integrity and the courage to stand up and tell the truth when you're going to face people that aren't going to like it. Right. And you know, I think that's why business owners would make great politicians because they're going to get up there and do things that aren't just lukewarm and telling people what they want to hear. They're going to get up there and tell the truth. So I know you're not running for office, but if you ever, if you ever did run for office, you know, Tony for mayor, (laughs) um, Tony, it's been super fun, man. Where can people find you to learn more about you and what you're doing with the three, six, five driven society? My website is 365driven.com. That's also the name of my podcast, 365driven. Go there. You'll find all the links to my Instagram, Facebook group, everything that's all on that one website. Keep it simple. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been super fun and wishing you the best with your endeavors with 365driven. Hey, thanks for having me on, Philip. It's good to catch up and I'll see you inside the group. It's fun. It's been a fun journey to watch you also grow and see do do new things and explore new avenues. I appreciate it, Tony. Take care, man. If you enjoyed today's show, give it a five-star rating. Follow, subscribe, and head on over to GoLeadEverything.com to learn more about the Go Lead Everything movement. For more great content daily, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at RealPhilSwanson, Facebook and LinkedIn at PhilipSwanson. And for videos of these episodes and other great video content daily, subscribe to the Phil Swanson channel on YouTube. Now go lead everything.